Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Thank you uh, all for coming. It's a beautiful day. That's probably why we have uh, fewer people in person. But uh, welcome to everybody to the Commonwealth Club, uh, as well as those that are uh, Zooming in uh, remotely. Um, Today, we're going to be focused on the important new book, Power Progress, Our Thousand-Year Struggle Over Technology and Prosperity, copyright here. Uh, My name is Ken Broad, and I'm with Jackson Square Partners, an investment firm in San Francisco. It's great to be back in person at the Commonwealth Club, and I'm very pleased the club has returned to a full slate of in-person programs uh, here at the beautiful headquarters in downtown San Francisco. And again, today's a great day, just emblematic of... um, how beautiful it is to be out uh, in this and in this building. Um, Jackson Square Partners is pleased to underwrite tonight's program and others like it that bring through top thought leaders for critical conversations here to the club. I encourage all of today's viewers to consider becoming a member of the club if you're not already. To learn more about membership and its benefits, please visit uh, the club at www.commonwealthclub.org. Um, as with much of the Commonwealth Club's content, tonight's discussion is extraordinarily timely and relevant. In this case, given the rapid rise and uncertainty around artificial intelligence, Power and Progress looks back into history to question the pervasive techno-optimist views espoused by so many, particularly here in the Bay Area. The authors take us all the way back to prior innovations, even including the economics of medieval cathedral building, uh, to try and better understand how broadly technology and productivity improvements are shared in society. I am pleased uh, that everyone here in attendance tonight will receive a free copy of the book, so uh, be sure to pick up a copy on the way out and have it signed. Um, To walk us through Power and Progress, we are honored to be joined today by Simon Johnson, um, uh, Professor of Entrepreneurship at MIT Sloan School of Management, where he's head of Global Economics and Management Group. He was also the chief economist at the International Monetary Fund during the turbulent 2007 to 2008 period. Uh, Simon will be in conversation today with Paul Safo, uh, who has thought a lot about these issues. Paul's a forecaster with over three decades of experience exploring the dynamics of large-scale long-term change. He teaches forecasting at Stanford University and advises organizations worldwide. He also serves on the board of another one of my favorite organizations, the Long Now Foundation. And if anyone from Long Now is tuning in, welcome. Uh, buckle up for an exciting conversational ride into the future. And with that, I'm pleased to turn this over to Paul. Thanks, Ken. I'm Paul Sappho. I'm delighted to be here to talk to Simon about his book. And just to remind you of a couple of things that uh, the Commonwealth Club is getting back to in-person offerings and doing these things in hybrid. But for those of you enjoying the hybrid experience, you really should come in here. It is just wonderful to uh, have the kinds of conversations we all used to have before the uh, pandemic. And of course, you can also learn more about the Commonwealth Club's in-person offerings on the website at www.commonwealth.org. As Ken mentioned, our guest tonight is Simon Johnson. He is the Ronald A. Kurtz Professor at MIT Sloan School, where he also leads the Global Economics and Management Group. He holds degrees from Oxford, Manchester, and MIT. And as you'll see when we get into the discussion, his extensive real-world experience involves uh, serving as a chief economist at the International Monetary Fund. So this marvelous book that he's written, Power and Progress, is really based on lots of practical and direct experience. And uh, I I found, uh, you know, Next time you got to write a shorter book, because I read it all the way through and I didn't get much sleep Saturday night. So, um, or maybe do it in two parts. So, what we are here to do is to discuss the contents of this book, um, and the title is "Power and Progress: Our One Thousand Year Struggle Over Technology and Prosperity." And I can think of no one more qualified to discuss this and to write about it than you. Also, one detail before we begin, uh, I expect everyone's been here before. Uh, If you have any questions, please fill in the question cards. Folks will be passing them to me in the course of the conversation. Simon and I will talk for approximately 30 minutes and uh, then hand it over entirely to pulling your 
your questions in as well. For those of you online, just enter them in the uh, chat box and someone will be monitoring that and pass those questions to me as well. So let's get started here, Simon. Um, the two words in the title of your book, Power and Progress. Let's start with power. And I loved that you, you began the book with a quote of Francis Bacon, uh, because, of course, he's considered the, the father of, of modern analytic thought and science. And he famously, uh, in, in one of his later books, he wrote, Scientia potentia est, knowledge is power. So if knowledge was power in 1597, it certainly seems at this moment that knowledge is power today. What happened in between? Has knowledge always been power? I think some, some forms of knowledge uh, certainly uh, have always been powerful. And, and you know, controlling fire, for example, uh, that seems to be something that uh, people or the, um, the people who came before modern humans were probably controlling that from maybe two million years. So that, that was sort of fundamental to any kind of civilization. And spoiler alert, I'm going to make him talk about something that's in the book. Your description of how fire transformed where humans lived was marvelous. <laughs> Right, so the, the archaeologists who've, who've looked at this, and, and, you know, be careful when you cite archaeologists because they have this tendency to have fantastic findings that then reverse in the next issue of Nature. So as far as we know at the moment, um, there, there are some uh, old caves in South Africa where it appears that for a long time the bears or maybe it was big cats were dominant and there are human rem remains. So in other words, the bears and the cats lived in the caves and they were eating humans. But right around the time that, that, that fire, there's evidence of fire, uh, the humans get the caves. So it seems like we were able to, uh, but we probably didn't start fires. Fires, probably, it was probably wildfires, but we learned to control them. We learned to keep the fire going and we drove the cats and bears outside and we took control over the caves, which, you know, was the beginning of some forms of civilization. Yes, fascinating idea. Well, and you're right about archaeologists. I, I remember the old story that archaeology is the combination of the three most humble professions ditch trigger, grave robber, and garbage collector. So we got to be nice to them. Um, but you made an interesting point further in the book, contrasting Francis Bacon's view and, and, and stating that Fa Francis Bacon was uh, taking power over nature. Uh, but also Francis Bacon was saying, let us learn from nature. And then you have H.G. Wells in the early 20th century saying, uh-uh-uh-uh, it's all about power over people. What's, this, what's the trajectory of that? Well, again, I think both things, both things have always been with us. I mean, the form of science that, that Bacon had in mind uh, was pretty primitive and, and not that useful for, for a long time. But in the 19th century, of course, there was an explosion of scientific knowledge, and a lot of it became practical. So if you wanted to pick a, a turning point, the railways with the big invention of the 1820s that boomed in the 1840s were mostly not driven by scientific knowledge. Those were mostly practical engineers. But electricity, which was a big in invention um, of the 19th century that really got going from the 1870s, that was driven by a lot of, a lot of scientific knowledge. And, and so in, in one sense, Bacon had his moment and, and, and humans, people figured out how to control nature and, and how to uh, create and channel electricity. But H.G. Wells, who, who was a remarkable observer of the human condition and also an, an, an amazing forecaster of long-term technological trends in, in some ways, he also felt, you know, and, and I think this was much clearer by the end of the 19th century, that some people were doing much better than others as technology developed and as science developed. And so that an element of, of the scientific societies that were being built was that people were getting control not just over nature, they were getting control over other people and, and, and that was something that, that Wells thought in, in, in most famous forecasts in, in the time machine would actually end very badly in terms of the, the hierarchies of society that would be created. So take that, you know, we're, we're in this moment where they're the apostles of abundance, uh, Ray Kurzweil being the most exponential. Um, and yet it seems as we get more abundance, we have more of a division between the super-haves and the folks below. And that's fa uh, famously referred to as the Matthew Principle. Uh, those who have get more and those who do not have get less. Do you see that changing? And, and is that a fair characterization of the sweep of the thousand years? 
there have certainly been important moments where that was true, many moments, perhaps most of the moments. But, and, and I think that is part of our problem today, and that's one reason we're worried about what comes next. But, but it's very important to realize that um, from the mid-19th century until, uh, roughly speaking, 1980, so beyond the mid-20th century, what happened was actually quite different. In that phase, more than 100 years, productivity increases because of automation were transmitted into higher wages and higher living standards for most people in these societies of industrializing Western Europe, North America, some, some other places. So that was a, a remarkable and, and outstanding achievement. And it wasn't an aberration. It wasn't something that was passing. That, that's still the basis of modern prosperity, such that we have it. The problem is since 1980... The focus of society, the focus of um, companies, I think, has changed. And, and technology obviously also changed. So the particular version that played out since 1980 is one in which the rich became richer and the poor did not do so well. Right. Thinking about that, uh, you talk a lot about work and labor in the book. And, and you mentioned Keynes and his... Uh, you know, we're both familiar with his famous 1931 essay, Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren, which at times, I think, having read all the literature since, it still makes more sense. <laughs> How did he do that? Um, but, but he basically said, look, the, the structural unemployment of technology is, yes, it destroys old jobs, but on balance, it creates more new jobs than it destroys. And it's just if you're, you know, this is like the old line about the difference between a recession and a depression. Recession is if your neighbor loses his job, depression is you lose yours. So there's a lot of uh, turmoil there. But on balance, Keynes's observation has been largely true in the ensuing decades. Is this moment different? Well, Keynes is, what Keynes was worried about exactly that the arrival of new jobs would not necessarily match the destruction of the exactly. old jobs. That, that did not happen from... So the, 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 there was a Great Depression in the 1930s for other reasons we now believe, macroeconomic and banking reasons. But from the 1940s on, for 40 years, we actually had a lot of new job creation. We had strong demand for labor. We had, consequently, rising wages and a lot of automation, right? So those things can go together. But since 1980, since the 1980s, we could argue about exactly where to draw, draw the line, We've had much more of the Keynes-type experience, but not massive un mass unemployment in this country, of course. What you've had is people who lost good jobs in manufacturing not able to find a, a, a $35 an hour uh, job in manufacturing with benefits, uh, not able to find such a job being forced to take a minimum wage job, or actually withdrawing from the labor force in the case of, of a lot of uh, men, for example, who would in previous generations definitely have been working. So we have um, experienced a version of what Keynes was concerned about, but not exactly his worst fear. Of course, you know, when I think of that essay, his other most famous forecast in that paper was he was the first one to predict the leisure society and said the, the, great, the great economic challenge, as he put it, would be finding things to fill all our leisure time. Um, tell me that's on the horizon. I got up at 4 a.m. this morning for a Zoom meeting and and I, I, I'm, I'm ready for the leisure society to arrive. Will automation deliver that? Well, this is, and I think there's a lot of common elements across many industrial societies, including how we grapple with machines and automation. But the French definitely take longer holidays than we do. Sorry to break that to you. And so there is an American working culture and a culture of success in America, which doesn't let you slow down, doesn't let you take right. a month or two off, right? And, and I'm not really sure why that's so essential here, but that is a reality, unfortunately, of American life. See, this is why you should, you know, I, I, MIT is a fine school, and I know that you know, the Sloan School needs you, but you should come out to Stanford because, you know, we're, we're more like the English system. We take off the afternoons and we don't, you know, you'd love it. You got to before I am to make your calls to Asia. I don't yeah, think that's okay, such a good right, trade-off. Okay. Um, so that's power. Let's talk about progress. What, did pro what, what does progress look like now in the ideal world? Well, obviously, a progress is, is a word that many people have used in, 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 in different ways. I, we are very drawn to the idea of, of shared prosperity. And, and to us, progress is not just having you know, a headline growth, not just having uh, you know, a 
avoiding a recession. It's actually being able to say, when you look back over the past 20, 30 years, did we all rise together? Did, did the tide rise, did GDP increase, and everybody got lifted up? Or did we leave some people behind? And if we left people behind, how many did we leave behind? Did we know we were leaving them behind? Did we even try to, to get them more prosperity, better lives? And I think that's the notion of progress that was elusive for most of the thousand years. It really was not the priority of, of the ruling class in the medieval times or modern, modern, modern industrial times. And, and yet it happened. That's exactly what happened in the late 19th century, in the early 20th century. Many people became much better off. Do we credit technology? Sure, sure, absolutely. Technology is, it runs throughout the thousand years. A thousand years is a, is a thousand years in which, you know, so people have been innovative for forever. So that goes back to the control of fire. It goes back to domesticating dogs. It goes back to um, beginning of settled agriculture. But over this thousand years, w w there was a pattern of automating work, windmills, water mills, steam engines, railroads. And, and that technology, technology is always improving. People are always being innovative. It wasn't always converting into shared prosperity. Right? Yes. That was the special thing that happened in the late 19th century. And, and I think if you, if you look back on that, and, you, and if you look back on it from the perspective of 1950 or 1980, and if that's when we were writing the book, you'd have said, wow, you know, we, we overcame the biggest problem in human uh, economic and industrial history, which is how to convert innovation, which we're always doing, and we're always pretty good at as humans, but we're not that good at converting it to shared prosperity, but we figured it out. We have solved the greatest problem that humans have, have struggled with in economic terms, and we've solved it for over 100 years. But that would have been the perspective of 1980. Now you look back and you say, whoa, we sold it up to 1980, and then we got onto some different path for whatever reason, we do explore in the book, but for whatever reason, we got onto a path in which we didn't share prosperity anywhere near as much as we'd done in the previous decades. So I'm old enough to uh, have had a professional life in the 1980s. And there was the productivity paradox all through the 80s into the early 90s that we were bringing in all this automation and it wasn't showing up as productivity. And then things around the dot-com bubble uh, changed a bit. What went on there? Was that just a technological or organizational lag? So it's a, it's a very good question. People still argue about that. Experts still argue about it. I think in part it was the fact that there were some big um, technological shifts and productivity increases resulting from that from the early 20th century, including when people, people moved to cities, uh, including and people moved to suburbs, automobiles came, a, a lot of appliances put into people's homes. The um, advent of electricity in factories, I think that's the single most important transformation of, of industrial production, even a, a bigger impact than the early arrival of steam, perhaps. Um, so those things took some decades to play out. We did continue to innovate. There the, the continued to be um, uh, plenty of technological change. Productivity growth did slow down, absolutely. But that was not, that's just not the, the primary driver explanation of why we stopped sharing prosperity. Yeah, well, but it was, it was also just in that period where everybody was saying, why am I investing in all these computers and it's not showing up on my bottom line? So, um, as you note, electricity diffused more quickly than the impacts of steam power. And that raises the question of the relationship among suites of technology was, and, and I mean, giving scientists their due, of course, electricity came out of scientific discovery where steam power was um, engineering technology and the like. Did electricity diffuse more quickly because we already had gained momentum with steam power and mechanics? Yes, absolutely. Uh, we already had uh, the physical infrastructure of cities. We had factories. And electricity diffused, you know, in, in retrospect, people would say slowly, over 30 or 40 years, in part because you had to remake factories with electricity from the get-go in order to really benefit from the productivity gains. You had to completely change the layout, and you probably had to build a new factory in, in, in most instances. So that took some time, but the, we, already, we were already, in fact, work, work, living in cities, working in factories. We, we had, of course, a lot of communication infrastructure. We already had universities of a modern kind. So that, all of that uh, made it much easier for people to understand electricity and for, and for these ideas also to spread around the world, which, which they did uh, much faster than before. Well, then the social dimension of that, I mean, the Industrial Revolution, I think of what Josiah Wedgwood accomplished creating a community of workers and like, 
you, you talk a lot about labor in the book. Did electricity advance as quickly as it did because it, we had created the societal conditions in England where there were people who could take advantage of electric power? Sure, absolutely. But I think the United States this uh, is, is the key driver for the adoption of electricity. So, sure. you know, in, in the 1820s, people, some people have forgotten, 1820s, the U.S. Was, was a fairly backward agricultural country, at least as seen by Europeans. In the Great Exhibition in London in the mid-1850s, uh, the U.S. was given a very small room at the back somewhere where it had a couple of things to display. It, by 1890, the U.S. was the leading industrial power in the world, the most dynamic economy. And that's when electricity began to really be deployed uh, Henry Ford had worked for Thomas Edison. That's where he got the idea. That's where he understood the, what you could do with electricity. And, and that was, was, a, was a, a huge force multiplier for all the other things that were um, accelerating growth in, in the U.S. And we should come back to Edison because he, he was, in terms of self-promotion, worthy of the most self-promotional people in Silicon Valley. Um, but you, you mentioned the London, the, the, the Great Exposition, um, reading your book, you know, so I was kidding, saying it was a little long. It actually were parts where I said, wait, you got to tell me about, you know, the, the things that I obviously I could see your publisher twisting your arm saying, OK, OK, we got to get this below a thousand pages and all that. But I was surprised that you did not mention Henry Adams and his essay in 1900, The Dynamo and the Virgin. That feels like such a perfect bookend to talking about Francis Bacon. Well, you can't fit it all in the book okay. size, unfortunately. So for us here, we're just among close friends, your thoughts about the dynamo and the virgin and what he was saying at that moment in time? You know, I, I think that there, there's been, been a, um, you know, a, a lot of um, discussion and angst about, about what exactly is the role of technology in modern society. How important is technology? How much should we depend on technology? Have we become blinded by technology? This is long before um, students were taking notes on their personal computers in our classes, right, Paul? Um, and, and I, we, we should let the audience in on this. We were talking about it, and he said, notice, and I said, students at MIT still take notes on personal computers because at Stanford, they gave up personal computers three years ago, and then they were taking notes on tablets uh, and, and note to parents who are paying for Stanford tuition at the moment. You may not want to hear this. Now they're taking notes on their smartphones, uh, which, you know. So what, I think, I think the, the, the question we've been grappling with since Bacon is, um, and, and, and H.G. Wells, to me, is, is the person who also you know, wrote about this and, and because he, he wanted to look forward. And, he, and, and I really admire the science fiction writers because they, they um, unlike economists, cut themselves loose from any of the sort of existing conventions and, and how we, what we believe is sort of reasonable things to, to think the future might hold. And they say, let's, let's, make a, let's imagine a completely different uh, future. So th the way in which technology powers our society but also undermines many of the things that we previously valued, it creates new values. How do we think about that? H.G. Wells, I, I would uh, remind everyone, you might actually know this, is that he, he wrote a, a novel in 1914 in which he literally, you have to read the book to believe it, he literally predicted uh, atom bombs being dropped from airplanes uh, as part of a world war. Now, the way that played out was a little not vague even, on the physics, but uh, yes. Totally vague on the physics, not even sure... Anybody, any of the, the physicists were more than vague on the, on the physics, right, in 1914. Um, but um, to have imagined that and to imagine that, that, um, that kind of deep, those, those deep uh, conflicts and, and, and pressures and, and well, damage. Well, you know, I, I, not to um, ignore everybody in between um, Bacon and Wells, uh, but, you know, Bacon also was a science fiction writer. He wrote The New Atlantis, which was the earliest utopian literature. Um, but the big difference I see over that time as I read your book is, um, you know, in the 1570s, 1590s, what Bacon was writing was very dangerous and lots of people were not talking. By the time H.G. Wells arrives, there is an enthusiastic public that wants to hear more. Right. And so that shift, what's the impact of that shift of grow, ever-growing public interest on the evolution of, of power and progress? 
Well, I, I think that the, uh, we, we are in a phase of techno-optimism today, and, and we, we have some um, concerns about that. But I, I think if you want to go back to an even greater moment of techno-optimism, it would be that period before World War I, when it seemed like every problem that, that humans had, had struggled with, how to feed enough, you know, everybody on the planet, how to um, get past uh, infectious disease, um, how to um, transmit signals over long distances. I mean, wireless radio was, I think, a, a, a miracle to, to most people, seen as a miracle. Uh, and and I, I think actually the, that ran into the, the, the shock and the horror of World War I. So that techno-optimism hit World War I and, and was really quite devastating because World War I was advanced, sophisticated machines being used primarily to kill people. And both sides in that war kept innovating during the war and came up with more horrible killing machines. The same people who invented artificial fertilizer um, invented and, and further developed poison gas. Yep. So I think that this idea that technology is a choice. You can, you can use it for productive purposes, you can use it to help people, or you can use it to destroy ourselves. That, um, which we argue is, is absolutely a, a thought we should ponder today and, and, and apply some of the consequences of thinking about that. But I think that, that, was, a, that was a big horrifying wake-up call in 1914, 1916 for, for people everywhere, including the United States. Absolutely. Um, technology is a choice. Uh, you know, First we invent our technologies and then we turn around and we use the technologies to reinvent ourselves as individuals, as communities, and as cultures. In the book, you, you talk a lot about vision and entrepreneurial vision, um, but you also talk about worldview. And as I read the book, I thought, okay, so entrepreneurial vision is the individual vision and then worldview is the collective response. But visions happen inside worldviews. Um, you know, again, not to make, make too much of, of Bacon, but there seem to be moments in history that are just extraordinary in terms of the things that happen. I mean, if you think of Bacon, his contemporaries were, were Shakespeare, Francis Drake, of course, very important to us here in California, 1572, when he discovered the coast. Isaac Newton overlapped. He wrote the Principia and the, what was it, uh, a, a little bit later. Um, and, and then if I jump ahead to in the book where you're talking about uh, digital technology, something extraordinary happened in 1947, 1948. We had Bertain, Bardeen, and Shockley inventing the transistor. We had Turing. Uh, and we had John von Neumann creating the architecture that we still use today. Vannevar Bush, as we may think, and, and of course Norbert Wiener with cybernetics. Do you see that? Is, are there other patterns in history where the visionaries come out of the moment in time, or are they really on their own? Well, the, the vision, I think you're right to put your finger on the 1940s, but I would actually start just a little bit earlier, 1940, 1941, when for the very first time, the U.S. federal government decided, this was President Roosevelt at that, the best, actually, mostly of Veniva Bush, who was extremely influential scientist, former dean of engineering, uh, at MIT, and, and then head of the Carnegie Institution Scientific Research Establishment in Washington, D.C. You know, Bush said to, to, the, to FDR, you know, big war coming, we should use all of the science that we have, all of the scientists, and apply them to do something useful. FDR said, sure, go and do it. The military, of course, were very skeptical. The military were like, you know, scientists, fine, maybe you'll invite, invent something for the next war, but we need something for this war. And what really changed everyone's minds was radar, the way that radar, which was not invented in the U.S., but it was developed and perfected and, and massively improved and became incredibly useful to the military by 1942. They were using it in the Battle of the Atlantic. Um, so that, the lesson there was there's something about national security that is tied up with our scientific capabilities. And in 1945, Vannevar Bush wrote a, a, a book, a report, um, drawing on his various scientific friends called um, The Endless Frontier, in which he said, you know, you should not rely on just happen, having some good scientists when a national emergency comes. You should invest in science, put money into science, value that, think about some um, sensible, deliberate, long-term goals, but also have uh, the option value, I think we'd call it now, so that um, mRNA would be a perfect research Well, and they example. learned the lesson from World War I, because at the end of World War I, 
all of that infrastructure was taken away. Right. And so Vannevar said to the, the president at the time, Truman, uh, said, why don't we keep this? And that was, so all of you who have uh, children who are going to be future members of the National Academies of Science, you can thank Vannevar Bush because that created the Academies of Science and the Academies of Engineering. So that's a cultural decision. But now let's carry that to the present. Threaded through your book is the sense that you know, we did some extraordinary things at the end of World War II. Uh, we said we're not going to make the mistake of World War I. We want real progress at last. So we got the National Academies, uh, you know, uh, popularization in the form of Bush's article, as we think. We get Bretton Woods. We get your former employer, the International Monetary Fund. We create this global set of institutions that is seeking to keep peace and create economic opportunity. Something happened in the 80s. We started tearing that apart. Well, I think, so first of all, and it's, and it's very important to remind everybody this, that the, the system that it came out of World War II was primarily an American design system. Winston Churchill also wanted a new system after World War II. Well, actually, he didn't want a new one. He wanted the old one with the British Empire, the center back, right? That was his idea of what, how you remake the world. And the Americans, FDR and, and, and Truman and the other American leaders said, you know, we don't want to do that. We'd much rather have a rules-based international system in which, um, you know, there, there is American backing, but other people, everybody else is on board. Yes. And we use as much trade as possible, particularly trade in goods and services, um, to sort of, to create the, um, the, 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 the chemistry that holds this world together. And, and that world was remarkably successful, including as the European empires fell apart. So we had decolonization in the 50s and into the 60s, many new countries arriving. What are they going to do? How are they supposed to become prosperous? They're going to trade with these Western countries. They're going to trade with the United States. So by the 1980s, this system had become much bigger, much more complex. It wasn't just the US and a rebuilding Europe. There were these developing countries. And it, it, it were, we'd also gone through some macroeconomic disturbances so that um, the fixed exchange rate system had broken down. There was a lot more capital flowing around, flowing, flowing, flowing around the world. Um, but th this system, this, this American-initiated and American, I think we can say dominated system, doesn't mean we call all the shots, but we are the predominant voice and, and predominant power in many instances. This is still the system that we have today, Paul. Though it, it, it helps at the end of World War II and the birth of the, the Bretton Woods Order, uh, the United States accounted for something like 70% of global manufacturing. And, you know, I recall a conversation with a, a French minister some years ago at, 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 a, at a conference, and um, he said, the United States, um, too big to ignore, too weak to make a difference. <laughs> Fair statement. Are there any French people here? Okay, let's talk about them. Uh, look, I think that, that the, the, the French have done very well out of the, Amer the system that the Americans uh, built. And uh, they, they are uh, always, always full of, of quips about American power. But, you know, frankly, um, you know, I'm not sure what they would have so done. So he was overstating, us. you say? Massively overstating it. Okay. But, you know, this is a moment, and I want to come to your record. Oh, by the way, the book will not be published in French. Uh, just, so, just so, so you know, I didn't lose any sales at all. In, in that. The French only want to hear from French intellectuals when it comes to future of technology, apparently. So I'm in the clear. There you go. The other, only other country which you, I mean, it's going to be published in many different countries' languages. Not, it's going to be published in Chinese, not in mainland China. And that's because when the, uh, we, we, were, we were approached by a publisher, uh, somebody representing a publisher who explained they'd be delighted to publish the book, but here were the small cuts they would need to make with regard to social media and internet and a few other political remarks, it would have been a substantially smaller book. And we said, no, thank you very much. Yes. Um, let me check. Uh, do I have question cards coming in? Oh, good. Yeah, bring them up to me so I can start looking at them. Uh, and I want to get to your conclusions. Um, again, what I really loved about this book, thank you, um, is that you've, you've introduced some new terms. I mean, of course, vision is not new in Silicon Valley, um, but but you use it in a really fresh way. But the other term you use is redirection for framing your answers. And 
uh, and I'll offer a forecast. It's my business, so this is an, I, I have a feeling redirection is going to be a term that is going to be is going to pass into our vocabulary. This may be the you know the the single word haiku that comes out of your book and and the like. But before I get to, can we bet on that in the Long Now Foundation? I'm sorry. Can we bet on that through your foundation? Uh, you know, I I, I I can arrange that. Yes, uh, I'm not sure. Would, I mean, I, I'd I'd have to pick a side, and I'd you know I'd rather be uh, objective. But I I think it's I would offer the prediction that redirection is going to really catch on. But before we go to that, this is a moment when it seems like digital technology is the solvent leaching the glue out of our global institutions. Um, you know, nation states aren't looking so great right now. And, and I think it's showing up this, this odd pattern in the last 10 years. It seems to be very fashionable to have authoritarian types as heads of state. And I don't remember that happening lately. Um, but one has a sense that the nation state order is, is at least getting wobbly to use the phrase of a previous prime minister in, in the UK what happens with the international order and how does that affect progress and and power well i like the metaphor of the solvent that, that's dissolving the glue but i don't think it's the nation states per se i think it's democracy yeah i think what what the the, the optimism certainly i had now <laughs> the optimism that i had and we, we we had on the east coast maybe maybe in the west coast you, you got this right from the east coast in, in the 1990s, when the internet arrived, it's like, oh, information wants to be free. We can share more ideas. This is more of the same sort of free flow of, of information that, that brought down communism and, and that destroyed, that led to the collapse of the, of the building wall. And, and it's, you know, I think now, 25 years later, we can say it's not quite so simple. And the authoritarians who were uh, wrong-footed by the first uh, arrival of Facebook, perhaps, and early social media, see the Arab Spring for details, very quickly figured out that you could rebuild even more effective um, control systems okay. using propaganda, which are very old technology. So they learned how to use the technology. They, used how to, they, 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 used how to, they learned how to adapt their very traditional mechanisms of, of authoritarian control, which is about propaganda, it's about nationalism, so, it's about turning people against each other, and, and plug that in to the digital uh, infrastructure that we gave them, right. and literally gave it to them for free, and, and all of a sudden, we, we, we have some terrible regimes that are more powerful and harder to shake, more aggressive in some cases, than, than we've seen since the 1940s. And, you know, to give the French their due, since we were a little hard on them earlier, we were. as you were talking, it reminds me of an observation that Jean-Jacques Servan-Schreiber once said, where he said, technologies of freedom inevitably become technologies of control. That, that was a good prediction. If, uh, I'll go back and check the original French and make sure you're not being too generous, but that was a very good, that's a very good call if that's what he said. And, and, of course, the obvious conclusion to draw from that is if that is the case, then it means one must have a constant revolution. Well, I, I think uh, we, we, have, we have constant revolution whether we like it or not. I think that's part of, part of, part of, part, part of the... Um, what it means to be such a technology-centered uh, society. True. So let's talk about redirection. And you, in the book, you create six proposals for where we need to redirect things. Take us through that. So, so I, let, let, me, let me just make sure everybody's got a little bit of the context here. So what, what we argue in the book uh, is that and this is leading up to the discussion of artificial intelligence and what artificial intelligence is and is not and could, could be and, 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 and um, perhaps is not yet um, determined to be. So a, a lot of focus um, in computer science and in the technology industry over many decades and, and many waves of artificial intelligence, including some AI winters, was machine intelligence. So there was, a, there was a, a desire, perhaps even an obsession, to create a machine that would be as good as humans in some specific tasks. I'd like to invent a, a, an algorithm that can beat the top human chess player, for example. Well, that's a machine intelligence. And once you've, you've got that parity or you've exceeded human capabilities in some specific tasks, you find a productive use for it. So um, let's replace um, the grocery store clerks who run, who check people out in, in, check you out when you buy your groceries. We'll replace those clerks with self-checkout kiosks. 
So machine intelligence, machines replace people. But here's the thing about those kiosks. They do, they, they do raise the productivity of the grocery store if you look at amount of groceries sold uh, divided by number of workers. But the remaining workers don't get higher wages. The remaining workers don't have higher productivity. What you've done is you just replace some workers with machines. What we think you should do, and this is the point about redirection, is, and, and we're not saying that you have to stop innovation or, you have to, or that you can actually stop people pursuing the machine intelligence. I think they're, um, they're too powerful and too far down that road. But in, in addition, you, you can and should develop what we call, I mean, we, we, this is our term, machine usefulness, but we're standing on the shoulders of many other computer scientists who worked on aspects of this in the past. Um, it's just that that did not become the predominant strain. So what's machine usefulness? So there's a, there's a, a company, this has now been documented by my former colleague, Eric Brynjolfsson, your colleague at Stanford now, and, and, and his co-authors. There's a, a, a technology company, technology services company, where their customer service reps now, when they receive an incoming um, inquiry like, you know, why is my computer not working? Uh, they see both the incoming uh, text from the, the customer and they have information from an, an artificial intelligence uh, program that is analyzing the text in real time and comparing it with all of the accumulated knowledge in that company and perhaps more broadly. So that, in other words, this program is helping the customer service rep do their job. It's not trying to replace them. It's giving them some additional tools. And, and according to Eric and his co-authors, it boosts productivity considerably, 10 to 15%, including for workers who are relatively low skill, don't have a lot of experience. So this is a, this, that's a different emphasis. It's not replace the workers. It's make the workers, particularly those who, who don't yet have a strong track record or a ton of experience, make them more productive. That's the redirection that we want to do. So let's go deeper on that. And, and also, I just want to note, we, we had a pact that we would not mention AI for the first 30 minutes. And we did pretty well on we, that. Awesome. We were 34 minutes in when it got invoked. Um, and you, you, you go into great depth about this in the book, um, though I, I, I think you, you, um, you give Norbert Wiener more than his due, but I know you're from MIT, so you have to do that. Um, it comes down, the debate is between AI, artificial intelligence, machines that replace us, versus IA, which was, so AI is, 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 is John McCarthy, 1956 Dartmouth Conference. IA, Doug Engelbart, also at Stanford, a little ahead, intelligence augmentation, that we use the technology to make us more effective and they're um, uh, helping us with decisions, making us wiser and making us better. Which one wins? Well, the one that's won so far is, is the first. It's the machine intelligence. It's the replace people. And that, I think, is it's, it's a very unfortunate particular intellectual tradition. But it's also been a big focus of, of um, corporations since the 1980s. I think globalization has played a role in this. The attitude of corporate leaders to their workers changed a lot from the 1980s. Prior to that, it was much more looking for the win-win. Subsequently, it was much more about how much, do we have to, how much can I brag about squeezing the workers in my quarterly earnings call. So that's, I think, the one that's predominant. However, the Doug Engelbart um, alternative, which we call machine usefulness, making, helping us do our tasks, that's not dead. I mean, it's still there. Um, and I think we want to augment that and encourage that and pull the vision of what can be created in that direction. So yes, it's a redirect, absolutely. But I think it's also... You know, the machine intelligence is going to keep going, whatever you do. I think we're trying to straight, there's a second leg that's been neglected, it's been too weak, and we're trying to encourage more people to move in that direction. The intelligence amplification. Yes, yeah. intelligence amplification, machine usefulness, absolutely. Uh, by the way, do you know how the McCarthy came up with the name AI? Um, I think well, certainly they were looking for a for a for a um, a marketing term and a way to a way to defend their grant, and they didn't like cybernetics because that was owned by some other people. Well, in in particulars, this was Stanford versus MIT. Well, though McCarthy wasn't at Stanford at the time, he detested Norbert Wiener, and he considered cybernetics guy. Yeah, he and Norbert Wiener coined the term cybernetics, which is a marvelous term that nicely captures IA. And John McCarthy was a little bit to the left, and Norbert, of course, was to the right. And, he's, and McCarthy says, I refuse to use the term of that fascist. And so quite by accident, we got this absolutely captivating term. 
It, it, it is a brilliant term, I have to say. I mean, the, 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 um, uh, the fact that no marketing genius was involved in it just it makes it even more impressive. Uh, you know, and if we'd done something like, if we'd called it Fluffy Bunny instead, we probably wouldn't all be worried about being overtaken by the AI overlords today. Or we'd be a lot more worried about Fluffy Bunnies. <laughs> True enough. Um, uh, so we should get into some questions here. Um, uh, technology companies have a lot of the data governments could use to run company countries more effectively. What structures could be set up to make that happen? Ah, that's a great question. So I, I met... Uh, so one, Thank you, Julian. One, one, one thing that's really striking about the chat GPT experience is the way in which it almost instantly became a global household brand. I think faster than, than anything else I've, I've ever seen. So I, I was talking with a, a group from Indonesia a couple of months ago, um, and, and this was a civil society group. They had some government people, some political people, some corporate people, lots of NGOs. And they, were, they, they said, I said to them, what do you want AI to, to, to do for Indonesia? And they had a long list of things like, you know, help farmers be more efficient, help them out of poverty, and so on and so forth. I said, well, you know, my assessment is you're not going to get much of that from, sorry, Microsoft or Google. It's not going to be one of their top priorities. However, if you um, made a deal with them where you said, look, these are the data that, that we agree to share with you or license to you from Indonesia, or maybe Indonesia is not big enough to get their attention. Maybe you need a billion people in Asia. And in return for, that, for access to that data, which can be used to develop algorithms for us and, and for other countries, we would like you to work on or help us solve the following problems using AI. That's an interesting trade, right? So that's using the, not just the data, but also the models of those, the, the dominant tech companies at the moment to solve the problems that Indonesian civil society would define, would recognize, would measure. That trade, I think, is a possibility. I don't think it's the top priority of for the government of Indonesia or, or the tech companies right now, but that's absolutely a possibility. So at an extra national level, what about NGOs? What about your former employer, the IMF? Well, the IMF is um, an important part of the, of the world financial infrastructure, and they do try to stay up with the technology. I don't think they are, they have a fairly limited focused purpose they are not charged with managing data, protecting data, sharing data on reasonable agreed terms. And that's part of the problem, uh, I think, is that these institutions that were set up in 1944, the Bretton Woods Institutions, IMF, World Bank, and then what became the World Trade Organization, they were set up in, in the world of 1944. And adding onto that structure, you, for example, you could have a big data, world, global data, um, public interest organization, except you can't create that sort of thing these days. It's very, very hard to, to create any of these new groupings. And, and that one, I think, would the, the industry would not be excited and you'd find it very hard to make progress on that. Now, in your redirection suggestions, one of your six recommendations was we need to rethink privacy protection and data ownership. What does that look like going forward? Well, look, I, I think um, it, it's a very uncomfortable uh, reality that much of the data that we've all shared and, and put out in forms that we, you know, we, we knew we were sharing it, but we thought we were sharing it on a, on a limited basis, that that data has become um, used, as far as we know, to train these algorithms. Um, so, for example, photographs that people put on Facebook are almost certainly being used to train facial recognition software that is being used to do what? Well, impose a lot more surveillance in the workplace um, tell the, the, the boss who's a good and bad worker based on gestures or movements or other actions, and, and maybe uh, to discipline workers or fire workers. I mean, that, that use of our data without our permission, without our express permission, I, th I think is not acceptable. It is very hard to, to pull that back now, but finding ways to, to, have, to help people organize themselves so they can protect their data, and so they can agree to license the data or not. I think that would be a, a very positive step. So it sounds great. And the Europeans have been talking about transborder data flow protections since the 1980s in the Reader's Digest case. Meanwhile, we have China. And their social graph seems to be a particularly dystopian vision. Is that going to catch on beyond their borders? And you should describe it a little bit. Yes, well, I think, I think everyone in this audience is aware that 
China has a very different attitude towards privacy and towards data protection um, and what belongs to you as an individual than, than we have in, in the United States. And, and Europe is much, much closer to us than, than they are to China. So, uh, look, the Chinese are going to do their own thing. And I think you just have to um, recognize that. I don't think they're going to... There's no sign that they're getting a definite or massive economic or political or geopolitical advantage over us from their path. It's a more authoritarian path. It's a path that they will likely share with other authoritarian regimes. Right. That affects... The, it's a te the technology of being autocratic is definitely affected by what China um, is, is inventing. You know, I, I think we should um, find ways to invent things that make sense for ourselves, find ways that are consistent with our um, definitions of, of dignity and privacy and, and protection against the state and protection against large corporates in the United States. And there will be a market for that. But without question, the, the, the world is, is, is splitting into two with two different attitudes towards data, a Chinese-dominated attitude and an attitude that's somewhere between what we have and what the Europeans have. Who wins? <laughs> well, uh, I'm an immigrant to, to this country, so I, I, I chose to come to the United States, and I, I worked long and hard to become an American citizen. Nobody... Right, and I'm a, I'm a former colonial, but we like you guys, so we're well, glad uh, to be here. So I, I'm very optimistic about the United States. I know it's not always very fashionable, and I know that uh, not everyone loves the political system here, but I think our ability to um, confront new ideas, to absorb them, to react, to argue, and to find better uh, approaches, uh, I, I think that the Americans, I think the U.S. has a remarkably resilient system. Of course, it's not perfect. Of course, there are many problems, and I understand full well that many of these problems are more salient than, than in some episodes in, in the past. But I think that uh, they think we can grapple with this one, Paul, and, and, and I think we can find better solutions, and I, and I do think we can redirect technology. So I'm going to test something out on you that I, I was very struck by. Someone made a comment. We were talking about the future of media and the countries that are media superpowers, you know, countries that punch way above their weight, like uh, Korean, you know, uh, Korean culture uh, and, and then Japanese anime and the like. And there are cultures that per, punch way below their weight. Like China does not have uh, any meaningful large-scale cultural exports on the same way. And this person I talked to said they know what the United States is next major cultural export would be, sort of like rock and roll in the 1960s. You want to guess? Um. <laughs> You'll never guess with it. I'll just All right, tell well, you. give it to me. He said, the next major U.S. export is wokeism. And, and I was in, you know, it, it just knocked me off balance. And I thought, you know, there might be something to that as a structure for uh, minority cultures to express themselves. I'll give you a second to think about it, because it's a, it's, a, it's a strange idea, but I, more and more I think about it, the more I think they may be onto something. Well, woke and wokeism, of course, is a, is a loaded term. It came from people who were standing up for minorities. It's now used typically by people who are not so... Uh, yeah, and he's saying in the sense of people standing up for themselves, this idea that uh, smaller cultures will be able to express themselves on the media stage is what they're saying. Well, uh, good. I mean, that, that's, that seems to me to be a very powerful and sensible idea. And um, the technology absolutely lends itself to that, uh, including because it becomes so fragmented. Yeah. Um, I think, I guess we didn't cover this thoroughly at the start. Uh, TJ asks, what is the definition or definitions of progress? He says that you explore in the book. I would just put up to what, give us your definition of progress. So, so, so by progress, what, what, we, what, what we mean, or the, the, the part of it that's absolutely central is shared prosperity. So again, you know, the, the, the economists actually use this term, it's a very common term, technological progress, by which it's often inter, uh, interpreted as meaning when the technology changes, better things happen. But actually, historically, that's not necessarily the case. There are many instances, we go through them in, in, in the book, where the technology changes. Some people do well. The rich get richer. We talked about that. But many people don't benefit. In fact, there are some technolo technologies, when they were adopted, that actually made things worse for people. The most spectacular and horrible example, which uh, I think still has to be mentioned, is the cotton gin. The invention of the cotton gin, which was... Uh, 
coincident with the big increase in demand for cotton from Britain because of the Industrial Revolution, cotton gin made it easier to cultivate upland cotton, which grew away from the East Coast in the United States. So enslaved people were moved forcibly from the East Coast, where they'd been involved in agriculture, tobacco, uh, and, and so on. They were moved to the Deep South. They were moved onto cotton plantations. The movement was absolutely horrible. The way they were treated on the plantations was terrible. All the evidence that I've seen and the work of the experts says that those conditions did not improve between independence and the Civil War on the cotton plantations. Um, and, and that was made possible by the technological change and the, in, in a particular global in, environment. So those enslaved people became worse off as a result of that technological change. So, we have. so we're looking for progress as in technology that changes in a way that benefits everyone or almost everyone or as many people as possible. So progress is technologies that create shared prosperity. Well, look, yes, but it's not necessarily inherent in the technology. It's how you use the technology right. and how that technology sits in a set of institutions and power structures. Right. So we've had instances like the cotton gin where a technological innovation preserved an old power structure. We had one in the United States. I think States. it actually worsened the old power structure because the South was not growing cotton until the gin made it possible. Yeah. Well, and there are things like the uh, U.S. social security system was on the verge of collapse in the 1950s when UNIVAC arrived just in time, and that delayed any incentive to try and come up with a different system. Um, but a key part of shared prosperity, in the book you note that Shared prosperity in the middle part of the U.S. century was not an accident. It, labor unions really played a critical role. And with that, the, the deeper notion of what E.P. E. Thompson wrote about, the notion of a moral economy. How do you shape a moral economy today with this technology? So I, I think the, 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 the key lesson in, in this regard from the British experience and the American experience and everyone else who was early successful industrializer, is you need some countervailing power. Because what industrialization did was create very big firms with a lot of capital and a lot of political sway. I mean, this is what Karl Marx pointed out. The reason we didn't end up in a... In a, a, a the reason Karl Marx's prophecies about the future of capitalism or the collapse of capitalism, capitalism were not true is because we developed countervailing power, as in more pressure for democracy, expansion of the franchise, trade unions is a key piece of that. And of course, the fact you'd pull all these workers into the factories made it easier to organize trade unions because they were coming to work. You'd synchronize their lives and you'd push them into the same working conditions, whereas before they'd been working in a much more dispersed manner. So that, ca that countervailing power was, was really very important for making sure that the higher productivity that, that was delivered by technological improvements was converted into higher wages and created a genuine middle class. Uh, so historically, in that moment, unions played a, a, a very important role. And you've noticed that, uh, you've noted in the book, all is not lost. You give the example of Starbucks employees, how they created their own union without the help of union organizers. Say a little bit about that, and is that a model for expansion in the future? So I, I think we're, we're all looking for uh, models and, and, and in the book we're, we're examining potential uh, countervailing powers that, that can develop. And certainly there is a role for, for trade unions. And, and I think that, that we're encouraging people to, to organize e effectively um, and particularly to, in, 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 a, in a context where they can participate in and help um, improve, improve productivity and gain the benefits from that. But th there is a very important caveat here, Paul, as you know, which is if the union sets the wages and sets the wages high, but management controls the technology and the technology is AI of the machine intelligence version, then what you're going to do with that high wage is accelerate the process of automation and replacing the workers. And I was um, recently in conversation, this is on a podcast that's been published, uh, with uh, people involved in the writers' uh, strike, the Hollywood and um, TV studio strike. And I said to them, you know, if, if I were on the other side, the producers, I would offer you a really high wage and, uh, in return for allowing me, the producers, to control the technology. Because then I can tell you that in five years, you're not going to be employing anywhere near as many writers. In fact... Um, uh, Music, Las Vegas... Absolutely. So what, what you, you'll have them, the algorithm will come up with a first draft and then you can hire somebody straight out of writing school to polish it, make it seem like a human wrote it. So in your classes, 
what's your posture towards chat GPT being used by students? Uh, you're expelled from MIT if I catch you. No, I don't know. You can't, you can't, you, it's very hard, right? So we told them not to use it. Uh, in, in the one class I had this semester that was a, a heavy writing class, uh, we did say you can't use it, but we also made them um, present in class and do things that I know was them, not the, not the algorithm. Right. Um, but it, it is a problem. I mean, well, you are, it, MIT does allow you to use a pocket calculator, right? And that's exactly, for me, that's what chat GPT feels like. I think it's going to become like a pocket calculator, but we also want to make sure that people learn some math so they can understand when the pocket calculator, when you put the, the, wrong, right. the wrong numbers in or you press the wrong button, you realize it's a massively wrong answer, right? So you right. need to develop the mathematical intuition. Then the calculator is a, is a powerful tool. That, I think, is exactly where we will go with some forms of AI. But that's going to have big job consequences, even, oh, yeah. even in that form, right? Well, in my class, the first day of classes, uh, winter quarter, I said, okay, I expect everyone to use chat GPT. And just tell me when you're using it. Let's see how it works. Because I think it is just like a, in the current form, like a calculator. A week later, I said, okay, stop using chat GPT. Switch to name dot, uh, or you.com because that'll do your footnotes for you and save you time. And so through the whole, we kept saying, well, stop using it. Use the next one, which leads to a question here from Dan. Actually, it's an observation that I want you to react to. Chat GPT seems to be completely outside our historical changes because of its speed of diffusion, its deep cultural penetration, and its monopoly potential, as well as its political dangers. Comment. Oh, I like that statement. Can I use that on my book tour? Is that okay? Yeah, there you go, right. I'll take that with me. Um, so I, I think that that's exactly right. I think that chat GPT is a, is a technology and, and, a, and a social impact and a change or perception of something like we, something we haven't seen before. In terms of monopoly, I think there's two actually monopolies here. So, okay, strictly speaking, it's a duopoly, but let's call them two monopolies because it's easy to remember. I think we have Microsoft with OpenAI and we have Google with Anthropic. And at least the experts that I talk to uh, feel that, that these two have got a big lead over everybody else in the field. And that lead will not be easily eroded, which will turn into a, a lot of market power and... I think they're going to have outsized influence on what gets invented. Okay. That, so as I was sitting there going, I wish this book was a thousand pages long. Nowhere do you mention Joe Schumpeter or invoke creative destruction. And you just said Microsoft and Google have a lead that's going to be hard to erode. So I, I do think that the... Um, the, the, the Schumpeter thesis that creative destruction, that, you, 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 that incumbents are always overthrown by the next thing. I, think it's, I do think it's very important. And we do, as it happens, have an op-ed that's sitting with a newspaper, might get published, which does use that idea. So, I, I, you know, I got some okay. add-ons. I got some add-ons for the, for the book here. But I think that... The, Volume the, two, <laughs> 1,000 pages. Perhaps, perhaps. But I, th I think the concern is that while... So think, for example, about what happened when the world became digital. Or even when we had in the early stages of the internet, you know, a company like AOL, which seemed very strong, and then it was displaced by all the things that came afterwards. What, because this, because the, the, big, the biggest digital players are already so good, because they have so much data, and because a lot of it's about how much computing power, compute you can buy, right? So how deep are your pockets? Um, it's not at all clear that this... And, and, and because it appears that econ big economies of scale... In, in the large language models. So if, the, if these things are true, that's a big advantage to the existing digital incumbents who, you know, to, to you know, hat tip uh, Schumpeter, um, OpenAI developed and, and ran fast outside of Microsoft's structure, right? initially it was a non-profit, right, before yeah. going to them for capital. So there, there is a piece of which, of which that, that fits the sta startups are disruptive, but then there's the acquisition or the merger or whatever we call the, the marriage between Microsoft and OpenAI. So that seems to us at this point to be monopoly-inducing. So we're right up at the end of time. I have a last question that I would love you to answer lightning style. Um, and I don't even have to answer, it's two questions. Um, I don't even have to, to read out the entire question. It's just two words. Climate catastrophe and education. Can you say something hopeful about progress in that space? Look, w why do we invent things? What is the purpose of technology? It's surely not just to invent more technology. And I, and I really think that 
aiming to eliminate people's jobs as, as a primary goal or something you get patted on the back by the financial markets for, I, I think that's not going to lead to the right place. We have a lot of problems in, in the world. A better education system, better education for, for more people, preventing climate catastrophe. These are real problems that will surely be easier to, to address, or we're more likely to make progress against them if we apply technology in a sensible and organized manner. It was your friend H.G. Wells who said, civilization is a race between education and catastrophe. As I said, he was one, one, of, the, one of the, perhaps the founder of the, of the long, long-term technological prediction. Uh, it's right up you. there. Good. Well, before we thank you, um, I, I just want to thank everyone who came here in person and also all of you online. And now let's give our guest Simon a hand. And also special thanks to Jackson Square Partners for its support of this program. And a special thanks to uh, Ken Broad, the Ken and Jacqueline Broad Family Fund uh, everyone who is here in person tonight, hint, hint to you those of online, everyone who is here in person is going to receive a free copy of Simon's book, courtesy of the Broad Family Fund. Uh, this program and others like it will soon be online at the club's website, and again, which is www.commonwealth.org. This meeting of the Commonwealth Club is now adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.